We're back into our wisdom teaching series. I'm studying the ancient books of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And today my message is entitled German Beer and Grazing Holsteins. And I know my titles. When people get online, they must go, what kind of church is this? But I like making titles, so you're just going to have to live with it because I'm the preacher and I get to choose. Okay, so... The two Proverbs we're going to read today are actually about two very important items in our life, purity and friendship. Let's see what Lady Wisdom has to say to us about these topics, and we'll start with purity out of Proverbs chapter 17, just verse 3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. This short little proverb is about purity, and it actually talks about how metalsmiths operate. Metalsmiths take precious metals like gold and silver, and they purify them. That's what makes them valuable. And how they do that is they heat them up. They put them in a crucible, which is like a furnace, and they heat them up. And that crucible liquefies them. It heats them up to the point where they actually liquefy. And it's at that point where the impurities or the dross will rise to the surface, and the metalsmith will scoop those away, leaving only pure gold or pure silver, which is much more valuable material. We do love us some pure things in this world, don't we? Not just gold and silver, but we love pure air. We love pure water. We love pure maple syrup. And in 1516, the year 1516, Germans passed laws about the brewing of beer to ensure that their beer was um, brewed only purely. It was the Purity Beer Laws of 1516. That's where I got part of this title. We love pure things because purity is so much better than contamination. Nobody wants a hair in their salad or an eyeball in their soup or lead in their water or any of that kind of stuff, okay? Purity is a big deal to us. And wow, was it a big deal to the ancient Jews who this proverb was originally written to. That's why... If you're a Bible reader and you'll read certain books in the Old Testament and there'll be chapter upon chapter upon chapter of what is called purity laws. And these laws dealt with everything of foods you could eat and not eat, how to deal with a dead body, ritual cleansing practices, sexually appropriate behavior, and the list goes on and on and on, all in the name of purity. Purity is a good thing. It's a God thing. It's actually the recovery of divine purpose in our life. It's a restoration of our true selves. It's an invitation into goodness. It's something to be excited about. Purity gets a bad rap, like, oh, purity, that means you're a prude. No, it shouldn't get a bad rap. It's something to look forward to because of where purity takes us in our lives. A couple of places. First of all, purity takes us to joy. Let's look at this, these verses out of Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit away from me. Not that God would ever do that. But restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. These words were penned by King David of David and Goliath fame right after he'd made a complete dumpster fire out of his life by having a torrid affair and then conspiring to have the woman's husband murdered. But look what he does in these verses. He connects purity and joy. He knew that once he returned to purity, there'd be a joy available to him. And he's right. That's true. That's what happens. It's kind of like when you have the flu, which many of you did this year. You know when you have the flu and you're sick for like four days and you're miserable. And then you wake up on that magical, usually it's the fifth day or so, fifth or sixth day. And you wake up and it dawns on you as soon as you open your eyes. It's gone. 
The symptoms are gone. I am healed, okay? And there's no more, there's no more technicolor burping. There's no more, there's no more you know, like fever. There's no more headache. There's no more chills. None of that. It's all gone. You still feel fragile, but you feel euphoric. Why do you feel euphoric? Because you're experiencing purity. Your body has purified itself from the virus of that flu. It's the same on a spiritual dimension. Purity leads to joy in the spiritual dimension in much the same way. That's why in 1 John it says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all impurity. And that cleansing process brings us joy. It takes us to joy. Second place purity takes us is awareness. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, if we can. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is Jesus talking out of a famous sermon that he delivered. The pure in heart are the ones who see God. They're the ones who notice God. Bobby was even praying that we'd be aware of God today. Well, the pure in heart are the ones that are aware of God and have experiences with God, not because they're hyper-spiritual people or better than everybody else, but just because their purity has led them to a place where impure thoughts and actions and behavior doesn't cloud their vision. There's a very famous verse out of Psalm 118. It says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's even songs written about this. Have you ever read or heard that verse and thought, This is the day? Really? Today is the day that God made? Today with all its trouble, with its addiction, with its heartache, with its loss, with its sin, with its darkness. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I'm supposed to rejoice and be glad in this day, this particular day. How can that even be possible? Have you ever thought? You should have thought that, okay? This is what I'm telling you. We've all probably thought that. Well, the answer to how can we rejoice in this day has to do with moving from analysis to awareness. Don't just move through your day and analyze it. Don't just pick it apart. That's what analyze means, separate to analyze, to look at. Don't just pick it apart and look at all the reasons that you're disappointed in this day, all the bad things about that day. You can do that with every day of your life, and that will just make you cynical and sour. Instead, wake up to the nearness of God. Be aware of him. Awareness doesn't ignore the pain and heartbreak in this life. Awareness says, I'm going to transcend that. I'm going to rise above that. Because yes, this day might have trouble in it. This day might have loss in it. This day might have sorrow and all kinds of difficulty. But this day also has something else. It's bursting with potential. It's bursting with possibility. It's bursting with life and the very presence of God. Being pure in heart gives you the agility to move from analysis to awareness. And in awareness, you're in a place where you can finally experience and see God. Now, the problem with purity is this. Purity is something the church has made a big, hot mess of over the decades for several reasons. First of all, we've used the notion of purity as a way to shame people. Some of you grew up in a church experience where you had the unfortunate experience of having the pastor or your youth pastor deliver a sex talk to you. I was good at them. I think I give really good sex talks. I don't want to come to your family and give one, by the way. I'm done with that. I'm done youth pastoring, but maybe I'll give all of us one someday. But some sex talks are done so badly, and you've all heard those. Maybe you've had to experience those, and they're completely devoid of any compassion and grace. The sole purpose of these sex talks is to completely shame those who happen to be sexually active at the time, comparing those people to things like a used toothbrush or a dirty sock. 
If you've ever been in one of those sex talks on behalf of churches all over the world, all through history, I apologize. I am so sorry if you had to endure this because please hear me. No matter what your views on appropriate sexual behavior are, a human being should never be compared to an old toothbrush or a dirty sock. Never. People are far too valuable for that, and that is shaming. And if you read through the scriptures, Jesus never shamed people into purity. He loved them into purity, and there is a big difference. Or how about this example? Jennifer Grant, I just finished her book not long ago. She tells about how she grew up in a church environment, but she also grew up with a dad that was famous in their small community for his immoral behavior. And that caused her a lot of problems. And in fact, his immoral behavior actually ended up fracturing their family. That made her life hard enough. What made it even worse, though, was how certain people inside her faith community, inside her church, treated her because of her father's behavior. Not because of hers, but because of her father's behavior. They looked down on her. They made real snide remarks to her. They heaped shame on her to the point where it just damaged her. In her own words, after hearing these shameful things said to me because I'm my father's child, I felt like I was spiritually contaminated and unworthy of God's love. And it took her years to recover from that shame. Purity is not intended for the purpose of shaming shaming people. It's not intended for us to look at people and find their imperfections, real or perceived, and make them feel like a lower life form. No, no, no. Purity isn't for the purpose of wounding people. It's not a weapon. It's an invitation to bless. It's God ushering people into goodness and us partnering with him in that process. Secondly, purity is not about separation. Some people, and I run across people like this all the time, all the time, all the time, okay? Some people that think that in order to be pure of heart, they have to separate themselves from everybody who doesn't claim to be a Christian or at least doesn't claim to be the same kind of Christian that they claim to be. So they wall themselves off from the rest of the world. That's what they do. They only have Christian friends. They only go to Christian events. They only listen to Christian music. They only watch Christian television while they're lounging around in their Christian underwear, eating their Christian Pop-Tarts or whatever, okay? It's just crazy. Check out this verse in Proverbs 17, verse 19, just a little further down in the chapter. Whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. Whoever builds a high wall invites destruction. As a history buff, i got to tell you, walls don't usually work out well for the nations or the peoples that build them. You can study it all through history, from the walls of Jericho to the Great Wall of Gorgon, which is an actual real wall, it's not Game of Thrones, okay, to the Hadrian's Wall, to the Berlin Wall, to the Great Wall of China. As soon as you build a wall, somebody wants to breach it. Why? Because walls tick people off. Walls send out a very negative message. Walls say to people, we're better than you, we don't like you, stay out. That's what happens. If we wall ourselves off inside the confines of what we choose to believe is Christianity, there will be a breach of that wall immediately. And the first person over the wall might be surprising to you. It will be Jesus. Jesus will breach that wall and instantly speak a word to your heart saying, what are you doing all cooped up inside this tiny little wall? Why don't you come out here where I'm at, by the way, with all the rest of the people in this world that I love dearly with every molecule of my being, okay? Purity is not about walls. It's actually about a gate. 
In the Old Testament, when people did something that they believed made them impure before God, they offered a peace offering to God. And the name of that peace offering that they thought would make things right between them and God and would atone for their behavior was called a korban. And that word korban means to draw near to God. So what a cool picture. Purity is not a wall. Purity is a gateway that helps us draw nearer to God, not a wall that keeps us away from people. Oh, it's a huge difference. Living a life of purity does seem impossible at times, I got to admit, because we live in a sin-infested, impure world, don't we? And so living a life with a pure heart seems difficult at best and sometimes impossible. There's an a episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson, great theologian, just <laughs> says a lot about God and godly things. And he says to his kids, his kids had tried a bunch of things and endured a bunch of failures. And he looks at him because his wife Marge wanted him to comfort the kids, which he's just terrible at. And he goes up to the kids, he goes, kids, you tried so hard and you failed miserably. And the lesson is this, never try. that's what he says to them. I go, oh my gosh. That's how we can feel about purity. We think, oh, I've tried to be pure. I've tried to have a pure mind and a pure heart and a pure life, and I fail miserably. In fact, as soon as I say, oh God, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, amen, I do something impure, like before I even, you know, barely get the amen out of my mouth. I know it's difficult. I know it can seem impossible, but God will get us into purity. He'll prod us into purity. And how will he do that? That brings us back to Proverbs chapter 17. He will use heat like a metalsmith to prod us into purity. Let me explain. Another word for purity in the scripture is holiness, which means to set apart something for a special purpose. Or you could say to be different. That's what holiness means, okay? There's going to be situations in all of our lives where people are doing something and we're around them and suddenly we go, oh, I don't want to participate in that. I want to be different than that. You might say, I want to be holy, okay? I want to be different than that. Maybe somebody's gossiping about someone and you go, I don't want to participate in that. Instead, I want to, I want to change the subject. Or maybe somebody is shunning someone. You go, no, I don't want to exclude them from this group. I want to be inclusive. Maybe someone's bullying someone. You go, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I want to actually stand up for them. So in those moments, in the heat of those moments, when we dare to be different, that's when God moves us further into purity. God can and will create a pure heart in us, but it's a process and it happens one courageous decision at a time to be different. That's how you get into purity. All right? Now let's look at friendship, the second thing I want to mention today. This is Proverbs 17, 17. Can we look at this? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. This is a fairly well-known proverb about the subject of friendship, but before I comment on it, I just wanted to say or list a few things that some really cool people have said some really cool things about the topic of friendship, and I just wanted to share these with you before I, I start talking about friendship. The first one, can we put it up on the screen? I'd stand in the shadow of your heart and tell you that I'm not afraid of your dark. Doesn't that just sound like something you would want to say to a friend? Oh my gosh, I love that. I don't know who said it. That one's anonymous. The second one's also anonymous, and I love this one. Friends come and go like the waves of the ocean, but the true ones stay like an octopus on your face. (laughs) 
And again, it's silly, but it's such a true statement about friendship. The third one is about, um, it's out of a line from a song. Home is whenever I'm with you. That's from the Magnetic Zeros. Remember them? Okay, there's like three of us in here that like that band, okay? But that just describes friendship to me as well. And then the last one is actually from author Anne Lamott. Friends are better than answers. I found that so true in my life. You go through these hardships and you think, oh my goodness, God, what I want right now is answers. Why am I going through this? Why me? All these kind of questions. And God doesn't often give us the answers. He gives us something much better. He gives us friends. That's what he does. We all need and want friends, deep, true, octopus-on-your-face type friends. So how are these friendships forged? How are they forged? Because we can say we want them, but how do we go about creating them and getting them? First of all, through sacrifice. Jesus famously said to people, there's no greater love a person has than this, than that person be willing to lay down their life for a friend. So he's telling us right there that friendship involves sacrifice. Deep friendships are forged in selfless sacrificial acts. There's this ancient Hebrew word, rea. In fact, it's a popular name right now, especially with girls, rea. And it means friend or companion, but it also has another meaning. It means thirsty no more. Isn't that just the best description of what a true friend is? A true friend is someone who will seek you out and who will find out what's going on in your life and then they'll sacrificially give of themselves to make sure there's nothing lacking in your life that you are thirsty no more. Friendship is forged in sacrifice and selflessness. Second of all, it's forged in commitment. The proverb we just read said, a friend loves at all time, and all is the key word in that statement. A true friend will love you in your best, your highest moments, and they'll love you on your worst, most soul-crushing moments as well. Um, In my mind, some friends in my life and some friends in your life, they're like two-year-olds. And two-year-olds, if you've never been around two-year-olds, you never have kids, two-year-olds can usually walk by the time they're two, but it's not really walking as we know it. It's more like controlled chaos, controlled falling, bumping, scraping, that's that thing, but it's, it's walking. But what amazes me about two-year-olds is how nimble and quick they are. Jack me nimble, Jack be quick, he must have been a two-year-old, okay? Because you'll have a two-year-old and you'll go, stay right there. And you'll turn around for five seconds, I swear, five seconds, just to get a bowl out to pour some cereal in. And you'll turn around. They're not there. They're gone. And they're not just gone like 10 feet away. They're gone. They're not even in the same room as you anymore. This happened all the time, okay, when I was raising kids. They're so quick. That's what some friends are like. They're right with you, and you think, oh, this friend is so close to me. We're such good friends. And then some hardship comes into your life something extremely difficulting and soul-sucking, and you turn your attention away from this person for just a while in order to face and endure this hardship, and you turn back around, and they're gone. They're nowhere near. They have bolted because your pain jars them out of their magical fairy tale existence. It reminds them, your pain reminds them that everybody slips on that cosmic banana peel and endures hardship and pain in this life. And they don't want to admit that. They'd rather live in the comfort of their own denial, so they bolt. 
true friends are not like that. True friends see the darkness and trouble in your life and they refuse to jump ship. They will not leave. They are so committed. They also are like two-year-olds, but not because they leave. They're like two-year-olds because they're sticky because that's the other thing that two-year-olds are. They're quick and they're sticky. And some true friends, they don't leave, but they stick to you. They cling to you. They draw close to you. They are committed. So friendship is forged in commitment. Friendship's also forged in the mundane. Most people assume that to have a close friend, you have to have these amazing experience with them, go on trips with them and have fun parties with them, go out to dinner with them and have all these adventures with them. And yeah, a certain amount of forging takes place in the real fun, glorious moments of our life. But most of the forging of your friendships will take place in what I call the mundane moments. To explain that, I want to look at the day of a life of a grazing Holstein cow, okay? Let's put up a graph. Can we do this? This is a graph. I drew it. I bet you couldn't tell, could you? Okay? It's not a really complicated graph. But let's say on the left-hand side is when a cow starts its day. All right? That's when a cow wakes up. Do cows sleep? Anybody know that? They do sleep. Okay, so that's when a cow wakes up. I knew it. I knew they slept. So a cow wakes up. And that little part at the end of their day, right before a cow goes back to sleep, okay, that is when uh, the milking happens. That's when they're being productive. That's when they're hooked up to the milking machine or being manually milked, which is harder than it looks. I can't make those things work, okay? But most people assume that, that the, the process of getting milk onto our tables happens only in that last part of a cow's day. And that's not true. The most important part of milk production actually happens in the first part of that day when a cow is out in a field seemingly doing nothing, just grazing out in the field, and yet that's when the magic alchemy happens of the cow's body turning grass into milk. It's the same with friendships. We think, oh my gosh, friendships are formed in the glorious times. Well, yeah, but most of it is formed in those mundane moments. Now, we're not out grazing in a field, okay? We're not cows, but we're doing mundane things. We're running errands with a person. We're doing chores with them. We're just having coffee with them. We're just hanging out. And it's in those mundane times where God does this magic alchemy and he changes an acquaintance into a deep friend. So friendships are forged in the mundane. And lastly, I'll end with this. Friendships are formed or forged in the heart of God. God is Trinity. He's three in one. And I don't have time to explain that today. I can't explain it, actually. <laughs> okay, it's, it's like way past my pay grade. But he's three in one. He's this constant, self-giving, loving relationship between father, son, and ruach, between father, son, and mother, or spirit, whatever you want to call the spirit. And so you could say, and quite accurately, really, that God is the original friendship. So when we participate in friendship, we're actually participating in who God is. Richard Rohr, a great theologian, he says it much better than I could. He says this. Can we put it up on the screen? Friendship is to be in the flow of life that's inside of God. How great is that? So friendship's not just the sacred gift from God. Friendship is actually a way we can actually experience more of God because to step into experiences with friends is to step in to the flow of life that comes from God to us. 
That's how important friendship is in our life. It's the pinnacle, okay? Let me pray for us, can I?